Happy Easter. I hope everybody's doing okay. Uh, just in the name of uh, full disclosure, I am pre-recording this uh, because we're going to try and have an in-person service in the parking lot tomorrow. I'm, this, this is, I'm recording this on Saturday. I will no longer refer to Sunday as tomorrow. We'll be, it'll be today. We're hoping to have a... Anyway, we're hoping to have an in-person parking lot service for Easter Sunday. So I had to pre-record this so that we could still have something for anybody who, for whatever reason, couldn't join us today. So um, anyway, a couple of things. I know we had said that we would go back to in-person services, hopefully April the 18th. There's some issues with the building that makes that look kind of unlikely now. So we'll keep everybody posted as to hopefully, hopefully there won't be too much of a delay, but there will be some kind of delay, probably. So we just we just don't know. So just on the safe side, we're not going to announce. We're not going to say that we're we're going back on April eighteenth. That seems a little bit ambitious at this point. So hopefully we'll be back to somewhat kind some kind of normalcy. Uh, hopefully by the beginning of May. Anyway, hope everybody's doing okay. Like I said, we're uh, I'm pre-recording this, so I'm I'm trying to see this as sort of like the uh, the first service. We back pre-pandemic we did two services. And we, we would do one at 9 o'clock and one at 10.30. And so I'm considering this the 9 o'clock service. That's how we're going to kind of approach this, uh, you know, just um, to, to make it feel more like, kind of like normal. So thanks so much for being here for the early service. I uh, hope everybody's doing okay. hope everybody's staying safe. Thanks for, uh, you know, for being with us up to this point. We're, we're, glad, we're glad that you're with us in whatever way that you could be. And um, yeah, so this is Easter. Let's let's do it. Let's see how this goes. So if you if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter one, or if you have an app that will get you to Genesis chapter one, that's fine too. Um, so it being Easter, this is my fortieth Easter on this planet, and up until last year, I, I I think pretty much all my Easter's had had a like a similar kind of structure. Like I grew up like just doing some sort of Easter at a church. So there were always there was always a church service. There was always, you know, you'd always dress a little bit nicer than normally. Uh, even on, even for a Sunday morning, like you, you like level up a little bit on your uh, your attire. There were you, there was usually some sort of when I was smaller, there was usually some sort of egg hunt. And then when I got older, there there was still an egg hunt. It was just I was more responsible for the the, the hiding of the eggs than the than the hunting of the eggs or the facilitating like the boundaries of where the eggs are supposed to be or where the children who are hunting the eggs are supposed to be. Um, anyway, there, there's always been a logistical, like there's, there's always been some sort of egg-related event as it pertained to Easter. Um, even last year when, again, up until last year when we were all in our houses, even last year we did with our kids, we did an egg hunt in our front yard. It was, it was a lot less challenging, I think, than what we were used to, but, uh, but we still did it. Um, but last year, like I said, last year for Easter, we were in our houses or we were wherever we were when we were, because it was right at the beginning of quarantine. We didn't quite know like how, how strictly things were supposed to be. We didn't know what safe practices looked like. So everybody was, we were trying really hard to just keep, keep everybody safe and healthy. And, um, and the thing about it was it felt like we were trying to celebrate what, what is meant to be a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, while we were still kind of grieving what was 
what we had no idea was going to be a very long, very difficult year. And and it, we were just at the beginning of it, but it already, if you can remember back this far, it already felt like, man, this is hard. And this is, this, uh, this is a lot, a lot bigger of a challenge than I think we were, we're used to facing. And that was, that was a year ago. So, um, you know, and we're still at, um, we're still sort of in the midst of that at one level or another, and uh, and it's it's weird to have to be back here at Easter, still trying to figure out like what does it look like to be safe? What does it look like look like for us to be safe? What does it look like for us to keep other people safe? What does it look like to remain healthy? Just all all these sorts of questions on a day that's meant to celebrate new life and rebirth and resurrection and in all sorts of ways. So it's complicated. And and really it, it's always the celebration of Easter is always complicated, right? Because we don't celebrate Easter in a vacuum. And we always have to sort of deal with some sort of um circumstances beyond just whatever is going on on this day. I think that's why it's so important that we have Good Friday and Holy Saturday, the the days leading up to Easter, which are the days where we remember the death and burial of of Jesus, because there, there's also like this this tremendous amount of sadness and this this um, this amount of grief that kind of is mixed in there. So we we bring all of that with us into an exploration of Easter. So if you are with us in in one way or another today, and you're thinking like, yeah, Resurrection Sunday doesn't quite feel like Resurrection, yeah. It, it really, in a lot of ways, it never has. It just we've been able to to mask it a little bit better than we have before. Because um, up until last year, we we could at the very least wake up and pretend like everything was fine. And then last year, we had this realization of like nobody's fine, and it's it and and to pretend like everything is fine is 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 just that it feels like pretending. And it, and we all, we all sort of had an opportunity to to experience the not fineness of things and we're sort of still in the midst of that at one level or another this year so um anyway easter is a day again it's a day meant to set that we're supposed to set aside to celebrate the resurrection of jesus which is part of actually a very old tradition because jesus didn't wasn't born out of a vacuum either and jesus's tradition didn't come out of nowhere jesus was actually born into a very old jewish tradition which is what brings us to genesis 1. so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the the tradition of jesus and we're going to ask questions about okay how does the resurrection of jesus fit into some sort of larger story and is is it possible that this later on we're going to look at the book of john and john's accounting of jesus's resurrection and we're going to ask in what ways does John's telling of Jesus's resurrection, in what ways does that fit inside of a much larger, broader story? In what ways was John not coming out of a vacuum either? So in order to do any of that, we have to go to Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, at the very beginning of Genesis 1, you have this ancient creation poem that we've looked at a lot in our in, in the history of our church. We've looked at Genesis 1 probably more than maybe any other chapter in the entire Bible, but we're looking at it again. So in Genesis 1, just beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a way of saying that all things were created. This is the, this is the opening sentence in a poem in which all things are created. And what we find as we go through Genesis 1 is that there is this rhythm that things are created and for, first of all as things are created they're created with a sense of again a, a, a sense of rhythm there are these phases or as, as the poet calls them days 
there it, it's you have you have certain things being created and then it, it is sort of stated that this like all these particular things were created in this one particular phase or on this one particular day and then so so it, it's in these movements but then also as these things are being created, these things are being declared to be good. So you have, there is a creation of something. God creates and all and a certain amount of things are created in this one movement or phase or day. And then these things that were just created are proclaimed to be good. And then there's a whole other, the, the rhythm continues and there's a whole other grouping of things that are created and then those things are declared to be good and then that is sort of the end of that particular movement and so this continues on and on and on throughout the poem for six different or really i guess technically seven different movements or seven different days and then if you get down into sort of the the latter half of the poem in verse 27 it says this it says so um, I'm right. Yeah. So it says, so God created humankind in God's own image and the image of God, God created them male and female. God created them. So at this point we have humanity being created, but it's not just the humanity is declared to be good. It's the humanity has what's, what's often in Latin referred to as the imago Dei, the image of God. There is something extra special about humanity. Some humanity is, is bestowed with something divine within it. And then in verse 28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this, this idea of ruling over, this is about stewardship. This isn't about conquering and destroying. This is about interacting with a certain amount of creativity and reverence. Interact with this, with all of this as God has interacted with you is sort of the implication here. So Humanity is created with the image of God. There is a goodness, but there's also a holiness that is bestowed upon humanity. And so, and also humanity is told to engage with creation in some sort of holy, divine, unique, specific kind of way. So the whole poem, the rhythm of the whole poem is these things are created. And as things are created, they're created as good. And then when humanity is created, this humanity is declared to be like there's some sort of divine presence in humanity which is the, the implication, it is very good. And then, then humanity is told, interact with creation as if the rest of it is good. And then if you jump over to Genesis 2, which is not part of the poem, it's, it's sort of another version of the creation story. In Genesis 2, beginning in verse 23, it says, the man said, Speaking of the woman, it says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. And then it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So there's this connection between these two individuals. These, humanity is connecting with itself in some sort of way. And then the final sentence says that they were both naked and they felt no shame. And th these ideas are meant to be linked. The idea of nakedness isn't just the absence of clothes. The idea of nakedness here is that the idea that there is no shame. So you have, from Genesis 1, you have the entry into all things are being created to be good. Then humanity is created. Humanity is, is said to be very good. It's that, actually, the, the phrase here is tov meod. And 
to it that humanity possesses the imago dei the image of god and not only that but humanity is meant to interact with the rest of creation with a sense of goodness and divine purpose and then towards the end of genesis 2 you have this acknowledgement that humanity is connected with like hum, human beings are connected with one another there is there is a lack of shame there is a there is a seenness to humanity here all of this is there is a goodness here that is set up. So if all you have are Genesis 1 and 2, you have the sense of good, you have the sense of imago Dei, the image of God, you have the sense that humanity is interacting with all of creation, including other human beings, with a sense of gratitude and joy and purpose, that there is a goodness embedded within the whole thing. And these two chapters, what we have in Genesis ch chapters one and chapter, chapter 1 and chapter 2, is these two chapters are painting a picture of what we often refer to as shalom. Now, we often translate shalom as peace, but peace doesn't quite do the whole idea justice. Shalom isn't just the absence of conflict. Shalom is things are as they were always meant to be. Everything here that's going on is the way it was originally set up to occur. So you have shalom. You have this entire picture being painted of Everything is as it was meant to be. So later now, shalom is disrupted. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says this. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So there's this fruit. And part of sort of the setup here is if, if shalom is to be um, sustained then for whatever reason, there is this one particular tree that you're not supposed to eat fruit from. And, and the idea here is not entrapment. The idea here is in order for goodness to persist, in order for human beings to be good, there, or to, to remain connected with shalom, there has, to be, there has to be the choice. I mean, this is a whole other digression, but there has to be some, some, some amount of free will. Human beings have to be given the opportunity to not participate in shalom. That's part of the deal. If, if you believe in free will which I do. So part of the story is there's this tree and in order for human beings, in order for shalom to be sustained, the tree has to be left alone. There has to, or the, the fruit from the tree has to not be eaten very specifically. So then in verse, um, so it says, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So Shalom is disrupted. Notice the progression. The last thing we see in Genesis chapter 2 is the two human beings have no shame. They are uncovered. They are without shame with each other. Then Shalom is disrupted. What's the very first thing that happens? Shame is introduced into the story. They realize they're naked and they're, they cover up. This isn't just like, oh my gosh, we have no clothes on. This is, we are not, we see each other and we don't like to be seen. It, it is that shame is introduced. It's not just about a lack of clothes. It's about the introduction of shame into the story. So the first wound, of, once shalom is disrupted, the very first wound that is inflicted is there is alienation from other people. That where, where there once was some amount of connection, some amount of seenness, some lack of isolation, some lack of loneliness, all of a sudden this new wound introduces these things. It comes in the form of shame. 
So if you have ever found yourself feeling frustrated in a relationship with somebody else, if you've ever found yourself feeling shame, if you've ever found yourself feeling like no one understands you, this is a very, very old wound. This is the first wound that we have after the disruption of Shalom. So then once Shalom is disrupted, so, so you have shame being introduced. And then in verse eight, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as God was walking in the garden at the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He, the man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So the shame doesn't just extend to how this person feels with, a, with another person. It also extends with how this person feels in the presence of God. So the second wound here is alienation from our creator, from the divine. That we're, which, by the way, is fascinating because the first thing we learn about humanity is humanity was created in the image of the divine, in the image of God. So now this, where there once was this like almost seamless connection between humanity and, humani and our creator, now there is some sort of fracture. The second wound, not the first wound, but the second wound is there is some sort of breaking here between humanity and our creator. Where there once was joy and openness and life, there is now shame and fear and regret. Then look at verse uh, 23. In verse 23, it says, So the Lord God banished him, the man, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So the final bit here is you're no longer in this garden. The whole thing starts in a garden, right? The whole thing begins in a garden. And shalom is established in a garden. And then Shalom is disrupted, first between humanity and then between humanity and God. And then the story ends and humanity is no longer in the garden. The whole thing, the book ending of the whole thing is there's a garden, right? So again, maybe you know the feeling of Shalom disrupted. Maybe again, this has been a difficult year. It's been, I mean, that feels like an understatement, right? This has been um, un, un, at, at times unbearable year or so it seems. And when we experience loneliness, when we experience frustration, when we experience fear, when we experience shame, those are very old wounds. And so maybe maybe you know these feelings deep in your bones. Maybe maybe the the lack of shalom is all you know from the past 12 months, and that's totally understandable. We we live in a time where it does, it does quite often seem like shalom is really hard to come by. If shalom is the way things were meant to be, I don't know what this past year was, but it wasn't shalom. Are you with me? So all of this, the establishment of shalom leading up to the disruption of shalom, all of it takes place in a garden. So in Hebrew consciousness, a garden is a place of wholeness. It's a place where shalom is established. It's a place where things are originally meant to be the way they're created to be, which raises a pretty, I think a pretty reasonable question at this point, which is what does any of this have to do with Easter, right? Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. It's about bunnies. It's about eggs. It's about um, making kids take pictures when they're way too tired and way too sugared up to take pictures. Um, what does any of this have to do with Easter? So, Great question. Thank you so much for asking. Jump over to the book of John, chapter one. 
So Jesus, because Easter, first and foremost, is about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And the writer John that we're about to look at, who records Jesus's death and resurrection, has a deeply Jewish sensibility. In fact, look at how John opens the entire, his entire book. John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Where have we heard the phrase in the beginning before? Yeah, Genesis one. This is, John is very intentionally calling back to this original creation poem. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And the, John here is talking about Jesus. And it says he, Jesus, or the word, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made or all things were created. Where do you see all things being made? Genesis 1. All things were, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John opens his entire book and his entire um, document with in the beginning and talking about how all things were made. This is a full-blown callback to Genesis chapter one. So John, what John is now about to do, and if we had you know weeks and weeks and weeks, we could really unpack all this. But what John is about to do is John is about to spend his entire book um, kind of mimicking the style of Genesis one by moving in the same sort of rhythmic pattern the Genesis one moves. In fact, several years ago, we did a whole series on the, the number of miracles in the book of John and like how each of these miracles has something larger to say about the whole. You know how many miracles there are in the book of John? Seven. So John is ha, has this rhythm that he's moving through. And he's, again, the whole book of John is meant to mirror the Genesis 1 poem as a way of saying there is some sort of new creation that is being born in the beginning all things were made. So John is using the Genesis 1 structure. He's using his reader's memory of Genesis 1 to make some sort of new point about Jesus. So then in, um, if you jump over, uh-oh, my post-it note fell out. Um, so then if you jump over to Gen uh, John chapter 19, where we have the death of Jesus, in John chapter 19, verse 40, it says, uh, taking Jesus's body, or they took Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was what? A garden. There, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So interesting, right? So John begins his book with in the beginning and he begins talking about how all things are created. Then he accounts, there are these seven miracles that he goes through as if to sort of mark the time. And then after the seventh miracle, John starts talking about how when Jesus was buried, he's buried in a garden. Then... And uh, if, you, if you keep on going, just roll right into Genesis 20, or John chapter 20, um, because in the original text, there are no chapter breaks. But if you roll right into John chapter 20, it says, early, the next, or early on the first day of the week. So the first day of the week, again, if the, I, I realize like to us, it looks like, it feels like we're like looking at needles in a haystack. John's original readers would have heard this loud and clear. Wait, 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 there's a garden. And now there's the very next thing you tell us is we're, on a first day of the week. Like there's all sorts of signal flares being sent of 
there is some sort of new creation that is bursting forth in this story. So it says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, who is what we assume is John talking about himself, the one Jesus loved, and said, they had taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they had put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, which is the funniest detail ever put in any Bible story. In the middle of, like, this is the resurrection of Jesus. This is what the whole thing has been leading to. And John just takes a minute and is like, by the way, I outran Peter. I'm a little bit, I'm a faster runner than Peter. Just in case you were curious, just in case all the other details of the story were getting in the way, I wanted you to know that I'm a faster runner than Peter. So then it says, Peter, uh, so the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He, he, the other disciple, John himself, bent over and looked in the strips of linen looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been, been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached, who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Twice, two times, he includes the detail that he reached the tomb first. Um, he saw and believed they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and the two angels and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was who? The gardener. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where they have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them they had seen, uh, she told them that he had said the things, that to, uh, said these things to her. So a lot of things going on here. One being that the very first person to ever preach a sermon, basically, about the resurrection of Jesus was a woman named Mary. But then there's also... John runs faster than Peter. We have to re remember that detail. But the, this thing of, they place him in a garden. And when Mary first sees Jesus, she doesn't think it's Jesus because she thinks he's the gardener. This is not a coincidence. This is not a small detail. John isn't just putting this in there, in there to be cute. John is saying something much, much larger about the whole thing that's going on here. The whole story started in a garden. Shalom is established in a garden. And where does Jesus's resurrection take place? In a garden. And who does Mary think Jesus is when she first sees him? She thinks he's the gardener. John wants us to know. John is, I mean, again, to us, these are details we very, very easily miss. To John's original Jewish readers, like this is, this is the whole thing. John wants his readers to know that Jesus's resurrection is part of the renewal of all things. This isn't just about one guy coming back from the dead. This is about all, all of Shalom being renewed. This is about the rebirth of Shalom.
all things are being renewed. The message of Easter, the whole idea here, is that Jesus is making all things new. Shalom is established in a garden. And then when the whole thing, when, when, when a new day is born, it happens in a garden. Shalom is reestablished. Shalom is reintroduced into the story. Look at Romans chapter 5. This writer Paul, later on, writes about what exactly is Jesus up to in the world? What are we, as followers of Jesus, who are we supposed to be in the world? And this is what Paul writes. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and he's referring back to Genesis 3, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And then if you jump down to verse 17, it says, For if by the trespass of one man, again, going back to Genesis 3, um, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? In other words, according to Paul, Jesus is the new Adam. According, and according to John, the whole thing takes place in a garden. The whole story is being restarted. All of shalom, all, all of reality is being re-given the gift of shalom. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is about. We tend to sort of shrink this whole idea down of the resurrection of Jesus. We tend to take Easter and make it about individualism. And we tend to make it about, well, this is because Jesus wants to forgive you of your sins. And that's part of the story, but that's nowhere near the entire story. This whole thing isn't just about you or just about me. It's about the whole thing. It's about the, the entire created order being re-given the gift of shalom. So in Romans 5, Paul is saying that Jesus is here to heal the wounds that remove shalom from the world. Jesus reverses the curse. So as followers of Jesus, our job is to participate in the renewal of all things. What, what does this mean for us? It means we receive shalom, but it also means we are now given the responsibility of bringing shalom into the world. What does it look like for us to be bearers of shalom? What does it look like for us to, to heal the wounds? Anytime you encounter something in the world and you think it shouldn't be this way, then maybe one of the questions that we're invited to ask is, okay, so what, what, what does it look like for shalom to be introduced in this moment? And is it possible that it's my job to bring shalom into this moment? The world around us needs a lot of resurrection right now. People are grieving all over the world, all over, I mean, all over Tarrant County, all over wherever you are, there are people grieving. It's been a hard year and lots of, we, lots of people have been lost and lots of, lots of relationships have been broken. Lots of, lots of what we assumed would always just be normal have been sort of kind of thrown to the wind. And, and a lot of people are grieving right now. A lot of people are grieving what once was normal. And one of the things that we're invited to do, first of all, is join people in their grief but also to ask questions about what does it look like to bring some sort of shalom into this? And that's not to say we, we go to people who are struggling or people who are grieving and say, like, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Or, or, not, or, or to offer some sort of small, um, kind of hollow-sounding religious answers. It means we join people in their suffering. And it means we, we bring some sense of you're, you're not alone in this. You don't have to be alone in your struggle and in your, in your grief and in your... Um, in, in your moments of darkness. Um, we still have a long way to go in addressing the deep wound that is white supremacy 
in our world and in our communities. And that this is a thing that we've been struggling with since long before the pandemic started. It's a thing that we will continue to struggle with. And the question that lots of us have to answer is, in what ways am I responsible for healing this wound? Or at, at the very least, in seeking some sort of reconciliation in the midst of this wound. Um, I think lots of us, we, we know what it's like to feel hurt. And we know what it's like to be betrayed. A lot of us know what it's like to feel deeply disappointed because things didn't go the way that we thought that they would. I think we, um, I think a lot of us carry a lot of wounds with us. And I think one of the invitations of Easter is we're moving towards the kind of story that's about the restoration of Shalom. It's about the healing of the wounds. It's about acknowledging those wounds, but also it's about trying to introduce shalom into the story, that the wounds don't necessarily have the last word. So maybe for you, shalom, resurrection, Easter Sunday, maybe it looks like sitting next to somebody as they grieve. Maybe it looks like making a phone call. Maybe it looks like forgiveness. Maybe it's been too long and it looks like, offering an olive branch to somebody. Or maybe if that's not a safe thing for you, maybe it just looks like choosing not to bear um, hatred and not, not, to, not to wish ill will on another person. Maybe for you, a little bit of shalom looks like, okay, for today, I'm not gonna wish harm on that person. For today, I will choose to not harbor, like to not just carry around the seething anger just for a little while. Just, I'm gonna set, I'm gonna let it, Sit, I'm going to set it down and see if that's okay. See what it feels like to do that just for a little while. Uh, maybe for some of us, it looks like seeking professional help in the form of a therapist or a psychiatrist. Um, maybe for some of us, it, it looks like spending some time really digging into what got us here in the first place in terms of how did, how did I become like in what how did I become the kind of person that carries around these kinds of wounds? And what does it look like for me to seek some sort of healing uh, in whatever way that, um, that manifests itself for me? Um, showing up today, just tuning in, either in person or on video, just taking some time and observing Easter, acknowledging for the, the possibility that, that Easter has some sort of hopeful message Maybe maybe that's maybe that's shalom. Maybe that's resurrection for you today. Maybe that's all you had in you, and maybe that's okay. Sometimes showing up is the best that we've got, and sometimes that's going to have to be okay. So, wherever you are, whatever resurrection looks like for you, may you find it. May you grasp for it. May may we be bearers of resurrection and shalom in the world around us. May we remember that the story started in a garden. And that the story is moving back towards the garden. That resurrection occurs in a garden. May we become gardeners. May we become the kinds of people who bear shalom in the world. May you find healing wherever you need healing. May you find grace and joy and hope wherever that's available to you. And may you, may you become a bearer of shalom. May the people around you know you for your capacity to bring some sort of new life into the room. Let me pray for us. 
God, we thank you for the empty tomb and what that points us towards. We thank you that the whole thing is moving back towards a garden. And for those of us who carry deep wounds, for those of us who have struggled, for those of us who we just, we don't even know what hope looks like anymore. May we find some kind of grace. May we find some, some kind of peace. May we find some kind of shalom in the midst of the chaos. May we observe Easter and may we remember that the whole story is moving towards resurrection and the renewal of shalom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much for being with us. We'll be back online next week. Uh, Chris Gibson is going to be with us again. So looking forward to that. And I hope everybody has a great Easter. Have a great week. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Grace and peace be with you.